This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an award-winning theater and circ director whose bold and whimsical creations have been seen worldwide. As a comic act designer, he has collaborated with the likes of John Leguizamo, Tim Robbins, Joan Baez, and Val Kilmer. He is the author of the number one international bestseller, The Power of Ha, Connecting Through the Heart of Humor. His experience with Cirque du Soleil and Teatro Zanzani make him an invaluable resource to clown town everywhere. Coming up, a guy who takes the funny business seriously, the clown whisperer himself, Stefan Haves. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Is that enough intro? That's that's I, I it's it's so pretentious. <laughs> that's why my I, my name I don't pr- pronounce it Stefan because no one can have a <laughs> Stefan is my clown whisperer. It's just too much. Yeah. No, no, but I think that fact that you work in the world of play is intriguing to me, because clowning it has different meanings in different parts of the world. I think in America it, it's not looked at it the same way as a European clowning. And so I guess I'm here to get perspective from you about what the challenges are when people even hear that you're involved in clowning. Well, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, we have to combat against cholerophobia. It's actually people are afraid of clowns. It, it's actually a condition that happens to folks. And, and that's because the clown is an archetype within our dreams, within within life, which can be out of control and no one can control the clown if it's a good clown and no one can second guess a clown if it's a good clown. So, so ultimately we are both the devil and the friend. The interesting part about doing clowning in, in 2023 is just yesterday, uh, Vigo Venn won the uh, Britain's Got Talent and he is a clown who took my class awesome. and he actually went farther than the singers. And because of his connection to the judges and the intimacy he was able to amass, they were captivated by him and they ultimately uh, voted him as the winner. I have friends that are in variety and that are in Cirque and when they work in Europe, it's quite lauded as very, very high level. And in America, combinations of children's party clowns and the fact that I think Stephen King says nobody likes to see a clown at midnight. There's been a lot of horror films where they've taken that archetype you talk about and used them against us. So those are kind of our American perspective. People think, I think, always of clowns as in makeup, but that's not what we're talking about here in terms of character and performance. No, in fact, um, I worked for a while in my younger days showing clown talent, and I did not dress up as a clown. I came as a regular guy. I had a nightmare. My first job, as it was with the Music Center here in Los Angeles, and my first job, um, I went into a school where it, I didn't realize that they hired me for clown day where everybody was dressed up like clowns, but me. And, and I get up on the stage and, and after, at the end, when I did the Q and A, a lot of people would say, Hey, um, you're not, you don't have funny shoes. You don't have makeup. Why are you a clown? I go, did you laugh? And they go, yes. I go there. Then I'm a clown. Yeah. You know, the clown is the bridge to the audience. The clown is the friend to the audience. 
The clown is about commenting on the world with you, not for you. Clowning is a service gift in a way because everybody has a story to tell. And the clown, I think, brings that out. You know, they become somebody for us to to join on a, on a journey, right? The adventure or the right. chaos or the whatever. The clown makes sense of that, even if it's fighting the obstacles. Yes. It's funny because you, you, you brought up clowns in America being so, um, so not reviled, not revered. <laughs> More reviled than revered is a good way to say it. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. And, and, and you know, you, you look back in, in time, if I were to do a snapshot of my history, and I'm in my 60s. So, um, you know, I saw Shields and Yarnell, who were probably the, the best mimes of the 70s. They were anarchists in the streets of Colorado, of Boulder. They would stop cops they they were crazy and they got um they got a tv job and you can only do so much the problem with variety is you you have one or two signature pieces but if you have 22 weeks of a of a show on tv it is going to flatline and and then woody allen punched a mime in one of his shows and so so mimes became funny, you know, uh, to be made fun of in the States. Johnny Carson loved the plate spinners and loved the early clowns and anybody who was eccentric and did visual comedy. You transitioned into the 80s where Dave Letterman was doing stupid human tricks. So you would have the best clowns in the world making scale coming on his show. But me in the 90s, I was doing a piece called Backman where my back was a face and I did visual comedy. I made $10,000 on America's Funniest People. And I went on to do uh, European and Asian TV shows where they treated me like royalty. So that's what you're talking about. And then I'd come back here and they go, hey, you wanna do this on stupid human tricks? We'll pay you a couple hundred bucks, you know? So America really had, uh, wasn't in the same place. There are some times that in a theatrical performance or in some places where the right person playing the right role, the audience doesn't realize that it's also clown technique, right? That they're taking people on a journey. I know that you had uh, some great success with David Shiner and Bill Irwin when they came together to do the Full Moon Show, which I saw in Los Angeles. I think it was at the Doolittle. And- Right around the earthquake. Yeah, yeah. Was that right before or after the Northridge? Yeah. Oh, wow. During, yeah, it was during, Oh, yeah. wow. But- you know, they came together. I think they were with the Red Clay Ramblers, which was a really great energetic thing. And I, I was uh, happy to see that. I, I had a background with some magic and juggling, did some street performing, but it was primarily a talk act and using volunteers out of the street and that sort of thing. And what I've always been fascinated with street performance is that it it's the one art where you have to buy a ticket after the show's over. Right, exactly. So you have to keep the engagement and the all the way through the pitch and all the way, and right the moment the hat comes out, when people go, well, let's get out of here, you gotta be more funny and more warm and more willing to be vulnerable for them to unearth the money, right? Absolutely, yeah. So it's quite a difficult style of performance versus the idea that these movies will show everything in the trailer and they'll sell the tickets and then the movie stinks and every, they've got everybody's money. You know what right, I mean? Right, exactly, yeah. There's so many different things I wanna to talk to you about in general about performers and human beings on stage and 
really what it is that the clown arts or that kind of physical performance does versus something else? Because a lot of the, the physicality is a great deal of how they're communicating what's going on, their emotions and the adrenaline and all of that comes sort of through the physical life of the performer. And that's what, what got me interested in the physical theater arts is because it's universal, it's worldwide. It's not about, oh, I make a joke about Trump or I make a joke about 7-Eleven or something and people laugh because it's familiar. The physical theater arts or the clown arts are based on a physical obstacle that you overcome and that can happen in China, Hungary, Spain, France. And, and I can go and do the exact same clown class in any culture doing the exact same exercises and it will resonate with any group of people worldwide. And it's part of that because the dilemma is humanity, like the, the obstacles and so forth are what we encounter in terms of our own fears or our own sense of fraud or whatever it is, right? Like, like it's sort of deeply rooted in, in our humanity. Yes, I mean, but it also um, starts to become uh, incredibly beautifully simple. Mm. It's not about why I'm sitting in the chair, it's how I sit in the chair. I see. How I'm gonna sit in the chair and does the chair hold me? We all know what it feels like to trip over something mm -hmm. and then have to cover. So what are those, those universal obstacles in everyday life which resonate with all of us? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are cultural differences. You know, you work in China and they don't like slapstick as much because of their into saving face mm. and not losing dignity. And they're worried that someone's going to be hurt. But in China, I found that any kind of cultural uh, stealing behind other person's back or you find the different things, but you do those visually without any satire, mm -hmm. without any parody. You're just in the moment in a restaurant. You brought up Full Moon, and I, I'm going to skip back to that because um, part of the healing that Los Angeles had was that Full Moon was playing and the packed audiences, it made everybody not have to think about anything. It brought people to this safe place of the clown. And isn't that a little bit in all story with conflict is trying to resolve tension. We create tension, we create obstacle. Sort of the hero's journey is, what do they want? How do they get there? How many obstacles can we get in the way? And, and the difference between a good actor and a fantastic actor are the adjustments they take around those obstacles for a non-writer, let's say, or a non-storyteller who might know the construction of story, the obstacles which are obvious to us are man versus man, you know, in a boxing match or man versus animal or man versus nature against a tornado or a, or a lion or something. But the one that is often missed, which is, seems to be the strongest for clown, is man versus himself. Or, or man versus object. Ah, uh, yeah, yes. Just a simple object. Right. Like I'm, I just have to unwrap this gum and put it in my mouth. <laughs> right. That's a one act. If you're a good clown, that's enough. I talk about that's a lot of real estate to play with. And we miss steps. A lot of times younger artists who take clown, they miss steps. They want to go, what does it mean? Let me go to the next. No, this moment is the moment. Unwrapping the gum wrapper is the gold. Well, I watched Rowan Atkinson 
do that with so many things. Oh, absolutely. Man, when he did and all that Mr. Bean development, it always blew my mind how much he could spend just trying to get the turkey to do something. It wasn't even milking it. It was looking at every obstacle and every angle and every doorway. The way Jerry Seinfeld describes it in uh, writing stand-up comedy is that he looks at a subject like he's got a drone and he's the drone can look all the way around. What does it look like from above? What does it look like from below, right? So he explores all the perspectives of something before he sets the subject down. Right, it's like the child is alive in all of us, asleep in some of us, but alive. Ron Atkinson is like a, a seven-year-old just discovering the day. What's the day? What's the next game? What makes a good game, a good obstacles? How am I gonna overcome them? For the people that you're coaching or teaching or working with on an act, how much is getting them to free up any kind of fear of failure? How do you get them into that state of play? Because I know that you are a, like a real champion that you can, you know, help them pull the chute and get to the ground. But before that act takes off in the state of development, how much are you doing to get them in that trusting place? My job is, uh, it's, it's a very simple job. We've got an instrument, a performer's instrument, which is comprised of four elements, body, voice, speech, and imagination. These work really well when we're comfortable. What makes us uncomfortable? Adrenaline, fight or flight, being in front of others. What makes the adrenaline happen? The fight or flight? Fear of possible public humiliation. You as a performer and me as a performer, we're both addicted to and fear possible public humiliation but we're addicted to it. We like it. We like the fact that we don't have enough rehearsal. We're not going to do it. It's uh, something's going to go wrong. And when we fool them again, that's our crack cocaine. That's our heroin. That's, that's what we love. So we're both addicted to possible public humiliation and we're fearful of it. Each time that you go through that, what I find is the risk to reward changes. The risks go down because you know it didn't kill you the last time. I am maybe afraid of new content or what I'm going to do. And and yet I kind of feel like there's no other way to do this moment. I just saw this happen on stage. Now I'm going to respond to that as I walk out. And I have to take that risk or there's no reward because I can't explain it later to somebody. At least I find that you increase the amount of risk you're willing to take. The problem is like, I'm not scared enough with 50 people in the audience. I need 1500 now to see, you know, <laughs> right. that's, the, that's the awful part, right? And the other part that you're talking about is you can make a formula, A, I'm gonna do A, then B, then C, and then A didn't work, where do I go? And then intuition kicks in and that's why we love clowning or that's why we love entertaining or that's why we love variety is because there's this ephemeral part of our intuition that takes over that's body intelligence. It's not, it's not your rote rehearsal. It's something in you that saved the day. And that's a beautiful thing. It is the same thing with an athlete where you realize every amount of practice you can do isn't gonna have the thing coming at you the exact way it comes at you in performance. Enough rehearsal kind of builds it into you in a way where your mind goes out of the picture to solve the problem. 
the 2D, like where we are right now and um, film and TV and influencers and this whole world within the computer, I'm choosing the rest of my life to be the champion for folks on stage. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm seeing influencers or I'm seeing folks that that can curate their work on the computer when they get in front of an audience, they don't trust that intuitive sense of survival. And they don't know how much the adrenaline will block them and make the body voice speech and imagination freeze up when they're in front of folks. So that's, that's where I like to live. And that's why I didn't even during the pandemic, I didn't even do many zoom classes as, as a clown. I didn't really want to see people in their apartment with a red nose and it doesn't have the same level of adrenaline. Yeah. And I like that perspective though. It really brings a good point because there's some great uh, people who make great content and put it out there. They're becoming as good of editors and curators, as you say, which means that they're just presenting it in a different way. They're not able to sort of just go out on the fly and, and, and be themselves. We have mutual friends. One of them I talked to briefly this morning, which was Frank Ferrante. He sends his hello to you, but he also says thank you for the early days when you were working with him at Teatro Zanzani and developing his Caesar character, which was sort of the the big host with the most and just an over-the-top party host. I had the pleasure of working with him on this his newest piece, uh, which he's doing, Cabaret Zazu, in uh, Chicago. And it, it's, it's very, very fun developmentally to work with somebody and keep saying to them, you just have to go for it. Like you got to, this is the point. You, you're, you got to push them off the ledge when that show starts. And he's as good as anybody when it comes to sticking with it, keeping doing another show, trying another way, giving another, you know. So I guess I wonder what your perspective was at that time, because you helped develop quite a few people in the Teatro Zanzani world in the San Francisco tent. That's correct. I was there for six years in Seattle and San Francisco from 2000 to 2006. And um, yeah, I, I generated all of the material for all the main comedians who had three different sets. So that would have included Michael Davis and Peter Potofsky and uh, Drea Weber and all the gang there? Yeah, and Kevin Joyce and Kevin Kent and, and, and Christine Deaver. So yeah, all of them. So many talented, really talented people there. You know, we didn't have a lot of time. That was that was the best part about, that's what I loved most about the training because I had to put things together in about four days, new shows while other shows were still going. And, you know, we didn't do as much FaceTime back in early 2000s. So a lot of it had to do with, especially with the comedians, you would have to curate what they did great and then what they're comfortable with and then see how that works. Now, you know, it was very interesting with Frank because we started out doing a Groucho one, but it didn't resonate in the tent in the same way. And so, and he kept talking about the uh, Caesar character. That one seemed to land better. We even did a, a, a mad scientist, which, but, but it was more like a Jerry Lewis, but Frank doesn't play low status as well. He doesn't, doesn't play nebbish as well. He plays the braggart, the capitano, the... And, and so once he, he got into there, then we had to see how to 
bring the victim work, the people up on stage and claim that. And that's a really good area to discuss too, though, because the audience is critical to be participants in the spontaneity and to make each night special by trusting not only that you have a structure you can play with the person, but giving those performers a chance to show off their ability to manage new things every night. That, that's what makes the audience leave saying, I was there the night this thing happened. And for you and I, maybe that happens often, but the audience doesn't know that. I just did a show in Guam and um, after uh, the clown act, I just asked some audience members, what was your favorite part? And this 11 year old kid goes, when the woman went on stage. It's like that, that X factor is so addictive if you do it properly. And at this point in my life, I have very, very important thesis surrounding it. One thing is keep it incredibly simple and let the audience member succeed and thrive. It's not about us like dissing them in any way. Even if you get a laugh, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a question of getting a laugh at, at this point in my career. It's about what is the nature of that laugh? You know, if you diss somebody or you take care of somebody because they're a heckler, you're, you're going to get a laugh, but it's going to be the, the kind of teenage uh, laugh of just like, ooh, that kind of hurt. And that's not the one that I want. I'm, the, the kind of clowning that I like to do is, is very guileless and very naive. I would even call it prepubescent. There are other clown teachers that are more knave-like. They're more teenage and they're a little crueler but they get the laughs, but for me, at what cost? I think it impacts the show overall, which is everybody in the audience becomes concerned that they will be mocked or they will be made fun of, right? So that idea of success or having somebody come on stage and feeling like, oh, aren't they lucky? Look how much fun they're having. That, it makes the curve go up as the show goes on because then more people are involved and more people are willing. And not, not even so much that hands go up is that they feel safe. Yes, that's that's everything. I feel like it's inclusive. Once you uh, set somebody aside from the audience at the cost of getting a laugh for them, that could be any of us. And that's disaster to me. That's right. That person is representing all of us. So when they just are able to clap their hands twice and you look at them like, and this Frank does this so beautifully. It's like someone claps their hand twice and he looks at them like, that's Einstein. I can't believe you did that. You are amazing. And the audience enjoys that. It resonates with everybody. You know, that kind of su supportive, safe container that Frank Ferrante embarks upon. And he's such a, a journeyman, kind of like a, an old school, hardworking comedian who's put all, so many hours up on the board. I revere him. Well, I can tell you a little inside secret. I'm sure he'll love hearing this as I expose it, but... You know, he had grounded himself in a life of Groucho, 30 plus years of doing Groucho, uh, an extraordinary tribute to the laughter and legacy of Groucho. And he was using his catalog. It's Groucho's material and he mastered it. And then he went on with you to do Caesar and he did, he did a number of other big plays, you know, that were like Sid Caesar type characters and things, always bigger than life. When we started working on this new piece, he still wanted to do the insurance policy of go back a little bit to Caesar or go back a little bit to Groucho. But when he let go of that, when he became the bellhop of the Cambria Hotel that he's playing now, and I kept saying, you understand, 
Frank Ferrante has the power, not not Groucho doesn't right, have the power. Right, right. Caesar, like he kind of felt like, oh, I have to have those guys with me. It's like, no, you're the engine of that thing, yeah. and you can be the engine of this thing. So he even was like, should I keep the same jacket? No, get rid of the jacket. The jacket doesn't have the power. You right. know what I mean? Right. But it is a blast to watch him do this thing. He brings the whole audience on a great journey in this particular show. We landed on the Festival of Forgiveness, which was something that we made up from Italy that he brought from the old country. And I think this is kind of a post-pandemic idea, which was to forgive others and to forgive yourself. You, in your TED Talk, you talk about the importance of love and self-love. And I thought that was a really, really powerful statement for everybody in any job or any romance or any place they are. It's not just for the clown, it's for the individual to feel okay, to be enough, to love themselves is the is the key to kind of succeeding in any fashion, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I mean, I, it's funny because I always say the clown cannot censor itself. The clown needs to take risks, but those risks can bring a chill into the audience in that moment. And the clown after that can always apologize. Mm -hmm. say I'm sorry I thought that was going to be funny I went too far will you forgive me will you give me a do-over and they will but if you bind up and you go oh let me go to my my next joke then you're dead in the water they are not going to follow you but if you are vulnerable if you acknowledge that moment if you apologize then they're going to be in the clown's corner helping them as opposed to prove it weirdo now you mentioned being shy was selfish yes i have you talked about when you're selfish with your art you're sort of keeping things from others you're withholding that's correct so is this part of the facing the fear of things by being open and addressing whatever emotions you might have or being willing to make the mistake or the epic fail when i was in india and i was doing talks there was even a hashtag shy is selfish when i would do something <laughs> it sucker punches people in the stomach when i say is anybody shy here and then they put their hand up a little bit and then like well you know shy is selfish because when you're selfish you're choosing who you're going to share your spirit with like you can share your spirit with your best friends at home, but you get here with me and you go, oh no, I'm shy. No, that's a choice and it's selfish. Can, do you wanna choose withholding or do you wanna choose generosity? And if you are a human being, not a performer, but a human being who wants a job, who wants to be in society, who wants to be, maybe be an actor on stage, you choose generosity of spirit. Why am I preventing this person from seeing my entire sense of humor, spirit, laughter, fears? So shy is a choice. That reminds me, uh, there was an E.E. E. Cummings quote about once we believe in ourselves, we can risk curiosity, wonder, spontaneous delight. Those experience, they reveal the human spirit. That's what we envy about the clown or clown type performer. When you see early Jim Carrey, you know, big physical stuff, you go, oh, I wish I was that free. For me, part of the reason I was able to amass this skill is 
through trauma and through childhood. I mean, basically I had a, a twin sister who was hugely competent and a girl at the age of nine or at the age of five can do what a boy cannot. So I couldn't tie my shoe. I couldn't fold things. I couldn't write at the same time as her. So I would do it poorly and people would laugh and I would be like, oh, that's my kryptonite. Okay. I'll just do this poorly. But it's unfortunately, it's a low self-esteem thing, which I mobilized into an art form in a sense. So if I trip on stage and people laugh, I don't have to pull myself together. I just go, yeah, wasn't that funny? Yeah. When I hold a pencil at age seven and I hold it really crunchy and it doesn't look good, and people are like, well, how are you holding your pencil? I go, I know. And I would, I would agree with them. I wouldn't have to pull myself together. Now, you know, there's negatives in that in terms of growing up, but there are positives in them about looking at people who make a mistake and go, that really wasn't that big a deal. Now, you were adopted as well. Oh, I was, yes. Were your sister and you adopted at the same time? We were. We were, yes. And what part of the country did you live in? I, I lived in Los Angeles. I grew up in L.A., so I was in, you know, the showbiz city of the world, you know. When did you convert just being the family fool and the using that to recover? When did you convert that to sort of professional performance? I was really good at, at being a class clown. And also it was a way of uh, sublimating my anger. It's, it's not all, oh, you are a class clown. That's cute. No, it's like that was also my weapon. And that was my empowerment. Because of trauma, I wasn't a good student at all. But when I went on stage, you mentioned that I'm adopted. My birth father was a TV cowboy on the Big Valley. His name was Peter Breck with Lee Majors and Richard Long and Barbara Stanwyck, Linda Evans. And so I, I came by it through my DNA, I think. The old Black Irish Catholic storyteller. When I got on stage, I was home and I was good looking with dimples and people really, really enjoyed me. Now, what was interesting about that is I never wanted to be a leading man. I never wanted to feel like I was a lover. I always wanted to be the weirdo on the side, but I couldn't compete in Hollywood because I, I had the face of the young dude on the love boat, not the weirdo right. in RoboCop <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? So it's it's like, interesting because human beings are sort of contradictions all the time. But if you really look against type, it's hard for the casting people or the director or the somebody, they go, oh, it's too bad that if this guy were more romantic, he'd be a great leading man. Or if he looked a little weirder, I could make him the sidekick. You know what I mean? Well, you know that about like Michael Davis and all jugglers and all jugglers want to be actors and actors, some actors want to be jugglers. I mean, it's just like you're always trying to do something else. The interesting thing about clowning is when you put on that red nose, I thought that my dimples and my smile was going to be my clown. And when I did that, it did not resonate with the audience. But if I was very judgmental in my look that I questioned and looked at the audience like cynically, I got a huge laugh. So you discover that the clown nose doesn't hide, it actually reveals. Well, that's what they say about masks in general. I talked to these great guys from New Zealand, Indian Ink Theater Company. I don't know if you know those guys, but they do extraordinary work. And it's all about the mask 
revealing. You know, they do a lot of top half masks and that sort of thing. They just said the mask doesn't lie. That expression is there and your body might contradict it or what you're doing may contradict it, but it does not lie. That's right, yeah. With audience participation, when you're building most of these things, that's kind of where you're looking for the home run in the structure, isn't it? That's the necessary component in clowning today. And especially in the world today, because theater is getting less proscenium, more immersive, more wanting to see people on stage, seeing how you influence the clown act, how an audience member influences the clown act. But the big deal about when you bring a, a person up on stage is they can't be just like a prop that you're moving around. They actually have to have the inciting action that's going to create the obstacle that's going to make the clown act happen. And we're going to see how the clown adjusts to that obstacle. I just did um, a show in Guam and in it, he had a magic wand, which when he gave it to the audience member, it dropped and broke. So then in that moment, the conceit is in that moment, he and the audience member have to figure out how to deal with this broken magic wand. And now you've done some collaborating with Tim Robbins and the Actors Gang in LA. Tell me a little bit about when you're working with a troupe. That was some kind of a immersive sort of send up. That was really fun. I did it 10 years ago with Tim at the Actors Gang. And that was a pretty much an out of the box variety show with his uh, ensemble of people. That one was an interesting premise. It was Cirque du Soleil Martians come to meet Rat Packers in the 50s because they want to take over Vegas. They want to learn from Rat Packers how you do entertainment. That's the one sentence thesis of the show, which gives me an excuse to do aerial acts. I had people like Scott Neri, the pancake juggler. I had all my Rolodex folks in LA and Vegas coming in, and even all the way from Chicago, I had Mooney the Magnificent uh, like come in and, and do a variety show. That's what I did 10 years ago. I decided to do it again because post-COVID, I wanted to do a welcome to the community, trying to get people back into the theaters, which was a challenge because rehearsals and COVID and, oh, I guess we have to stop and all this kind of stuff. But it was a big show. The two mandates that I wanted to go for were immersive and gender bender, gender fluid. So it was a gender fluid immersive show. And I said, this is what 2022 is all about. So if I can do that, I'm going to get butts on seats. So basically audience came in to another planet. They were hijacked by feline Musk, who was a cat who looked like Elon Musk, but it was played by Gina Belafonte, Harry Belafonte's daughter, who Harry Belafonte, as we know, just died recently. Yeah. And, uh, extraordinary talent and, he was. Yes. And Gina is extraordinary as well. She played uh, the, the kind of a, a, a rat pack dude. And she stole the audience. They go through the ocean, through a sideshow, through Day of the Dead, through a 1950s house, and then they sit in the, in the theater to start the show. So before the show even starts, the whole audience have gone through all kinds of curated rooms with artists doing fun stuff. Oh, I see. So it was actually a little bit of a fun house uh, entryway. Absolutely. A maze through it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because that's what people want these days. And so, so if it's an hour and 10 minute show, the first 15 minutes of the show are them getting to their seats. But the nice thing about this one, as opposed to 10 years ago, is I really had about three or four weeks to make some really, really good sketches with the 15 to 20 actors gang uh, members. Well, you've worked with so many talented people because of your adrenaline, your addiction to possible public humiliation. And I see that you're live today, so spoiler alert to everyone. But I'm just wondering if there was ever an epic fail that you felt like was the crescendo of all failures, like where you go, oh, that was a tough one. It took me a while to get over that. Oh, I got a great one. Teatro Zanzani. It was 2002, probably. And I wanted to take the piss out of Cirque du Soleil. And I did a show where the lead wanted to make a bird circus. And I was going to call it Chirp du Soleil. And I even had banners made to say Chirp du Soleil. And she was crazy. And it was almost like a Andy Kaufman moment where her little guy comes out and tries to do a joke poorly. But I'm just about to bring in this huge, beautiful parade but I let the thing go south for the first four minutes. And she goes, welcome to Chirp de Soleil. And it's like crickets. It's like, and I realized, oh, regular audiences don't wanna make fun of Cirque du Soleil. The three acrobats who are in the audience think this is the funniest thing on the planet, but everybody else who paid a lot of money do not wanna see me take the piss out of an institution that has changed the course of circus. So I'm sitting with my choreographer, Chirp de Soleil, boom, nothing. I'm like, oh, I just look, I just look at her and go, I think we're going to have to change that. And we got through it. It was an easy fix. All I had to do was put a beautiful, huge, opulent parade in the front end, take out Chirp de Soleil, audience is happy that they got their values worth of money. And that was the valuable lesson to me because it's not about my art or my agenda. It's about their evening trying to impress their girlfriend or their business associates. It's not about me and what I think is funny. But sometimes you can see a performer when they wanna make a personal jab or they wanna take that one little dart and shoot it into somebody else, where that was like a personal thing you wanted to get off your chest at, at that moment. Yeah, and the other thing that I'm so glad about, and I'm glad for Norm Langell and the Teatro Zanzani folks, is I could make mistakes publicly and correct them. See, this is something which, when you work with Cirque du Soleil or big companies, they will preempt an idea. Certain directors are scared before, and I know it's like the hallucination in your brain is catastrophizing right now, but let's see it in front of an audience and then I can adjust it. And the best directors that I've worked with are the ones that say, Stefan, I trust you. If it's not good, you'll make it better. You're the first one that wants to change it. I've said that to people in rehearsal for comedies, doing plays stuff. I said, here's the thing. It's not graduation day until we see the audience see it. Then we can discuss it. We can't argue whether it's good or bad today. Let's do that after the first show. And then if it's terrible, I'm going to be the one that begs to take it out. But trust me, let's see a little bit. Yes, right. There's so many areas that I would still love to discuss with you, but we will have to do that on our own time. 
You mentioned in something that you, when you street performed in Paris, that you met one of the best clowns in the world. Who was that? David Shiner. And that's when you began a partnership in some ways or a friendship that lasted a long time? A friendship, yes, yes. You have this fantastic book, which we didn't talk very much about, but I've been reading called The Power of Ha, Connecting Through the Heart of Humor. And it's got all kinds of great stories and advice and permission to be yourself and to open up and to be the fool and to not be afraid of the failure and to let the audience come and participate and be where peril meets connection and all of those fantastic parts of it that really I'd, I'd encourage them to buy the book rather than me chat about it. Is there any advice you would give to somebody who is brand new to the theater arts that may be giving up, stripping away their regular job and joining an improv group or the person who's walking through the door for the first time versus the experienced people you work with all the time? The thing is, if you're going to do, if you're going to do this, do it and you can fail and do it again. The question is, are you going to be able to have the perseverance to not be very good at first? My first shows, I, I self-produced. And when I look back at them, they weren't very good, but darn it, I got together with some really, really great performers. And to this day, we will still work together and collaborate. If someone is inspiring to you, go do what you can, be of service make theater happen, find out how to do lights. I love lighting. If you like music, put a piece together with music. You're on your own, guys. We're all clowns. We're all orphans. We're all doing the best we can. And we're all being of service to the spirit of culture through clowning. And just do your best to be of service that way. There's always time to change your story. In your TED Talk, you talk about summon the courage. And the courage is just about being proactive towards what you want your story to be. We're not doing brain surgery. We're doing arts and the arts is mutable and you can change and you can reimagine it. And like the clown, you can say, I'm sorry, that wasn't a good idea. I probably shouldn't have gone that down that road. Can you be humble as you go forward? And asterisk, this is not for actual brain surgeons. If you heard that, you are doing brain surgery. but. For the rest of us. <laughs> For the rest of us, yeah. Ernest Borgnine said, I think we all have the urge to be a clown, whether we know it or not. And I think that's true. When you're at the Thanksgiving table, everybody's got a funny story about when they threw up in junior high or whatever, and they do, they do it without thinking about it. They're just reminded by someone else's story. And I think that's when we feel the freest and we feel the most alive is when we're being our authentic selves. If you look at clowning as not making laughter happen, that's a byproduct. That's a byproduct. You cannot control that. Oh, make me laugh. No, I'm going to connect with you and you're going to be empathic towards me as I talk to you. And then we may laugh together or we may cry together or we may just go, oh. But it, the second you take away the benchmark of laughter, the clown appears. I think that's fantastic advice. The truth is, it's about the human condition. So whatever we're experiencing with that, as long as we can mirror each other and see the world uh, as a better place, it probably is kind of in the spirit of clowning. The only other thing that I'm doing that I wanted to shout out is I'm doing a, uh, a summer camp, a circus summer camp at an Indian reservation up in Hopland, California. 
So we just started a GoFundMe for that. Once again, we have to look at clowning and the arts as being of service. All right. Is there a, is there a GoFundMe uh, address that you want to share? Just contact me on my website. Which is stephanhaves.com, S-T-E-F-A-N-H-A-V-E-S.com. Thank you so much for sharing this insight and inspiration. I'm, I'm grateful to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Hannah Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery-pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right, I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghost stage.